This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. And tonight, we air the show that we had to postpone last week. Dr. Joseph Farrell, Nazi Inc., The Business Plan Continues, War, Fascism, Roswell, 9-11, and more. Joseph Farrell will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows. That's 80 to date. A few very test live shows, and the Manticore Forum. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. I want to congratulate the new winner of our This Ad Space Offer Auction campaign. The winner of the auction took the space on the left side of the website. We will do this again shortly. 
that was the perfect mechanism to price our advertising fees. Next week's special guest is James Gilliland. And speaking of James, this is a reminder that I will be at the E-SETI conference at James Ranch. Not to be confused with Dr. Stephen Greer's C-SETI conference. I know a few of you will be there, and I'm looking forward to spending time with you and being witness to all the wonderful things those of you who have been there have told me. And I just received a few samples of the metal case 8GB USB drives preloaded with all Season 1. That's 59 episodes, all at 128 kps CD quality. These are only a few samples, so if you're interested, head on over to our website and go to the Veritas store and place your order. If we run out, I will let you know when the next arrival comes. I preloaded one of them and I keep it in my pocket and people just love it. It looks very futuristic. And this is a message to all Veritas members who use PayPal and have a renewing subscription. It seems that if you have an expired credit card with PayPal, they try to renew you, but instead they cancel you because the credit card is expired. And even if it's not renewing and your credit card expires, they cancel you too. Folks, I have no control whatsoever over subscriptions or cancellations. That's PayPal. I've said this before, that the old grandfathered rates are no longer available and they won't be back. So even if PayPal cancels you and you have the grandfathered rate, please don't be upset at us. To avoid this from happening, go to your PayPal account and make sure that all your data is current. And if you get canceled, all you need to do is go back to our website, VeritasShow.com, and resubscribe, and you'll be back with us. And this has been a very busy week. Many of you know documentary filmmaker and friend of this show, James Fox. He is presently in the Louisiana area documenting the oil spill. On Monday, we connected and recorded a short interview, hours after it was posted. It went viral worldwide. I had no idea that it would go around the planet so quickly. Our servers have been jammed all week long, even today. So if you're having trouble accessing our website, listening or downloading a show, now you know why. The next day, I did an interview with A.C. Griffith regarding a what-if scenario if the oil spill continues. I warn you, that one is not for the fate of heart. Many people have asked if I could continue producing these shorter interviews for the world, and I will, schedule permitting. Then yesterday, I wanted to get to the bottom of things. There were a few questions that were still unanswered. One, are people really being arrested for reporting? Two, is BP considering alternative solutions? And three, why are the residents of the area so afraid to go on the record? Oh, and let me add four, how big is the oil spill really? Well, I decided to make contact with the chief of police from Grand Isle, Louisiana. In summary, he said they are not arresting anyone, and they actually welcome the media. In fact, he offered to send one of his deputies to escort James Fox as long as he wanted. The police chief provided his cell phone to me so I could get in touch with them at any time, and even provided the cell phone from a BP representative who is or was in charge of considering alternative solutions. You see, there is a proven solution that was used years ago during another oil spill. 
and it worked 100%. It fully restored the area in just six weeks. It's a microbe that is spread around the oil spill. It eats the oil, and what remains turns into marine life food, leaving the water clean. If this has been used before, and it worked, why won't BP consider it? They need all the positive PR right now. A place to call for this gentleman, and it has not been returned. I suspect the media blackout is also originating from BP. I will keep you updated. I also have plans to do an interview with investigative reporter Sherry Kane and Dr. Leonard Horowitz. Remember, we did a great show last year called Behind the Swine Flu Pandemic. This one will be behind the Gulf of Mexico oil spill and BP's influence. So stay tuned. You can listen to these three interviews on our website. Once a few more interviews are compiled, we will create a bonus show that you can download. For more updates, you can visit our website, VeritasShow.com, our forum for all the discussion taking place, and our Facebook page. I want to thank all of you who are crucial in spreading the information worldwide without the assistance of the mainstream media. Who would have thought? But that is evidence that together we can all make a difference. Who speaks for the animals and for the planet? We do. And if you're listening to this broadcast early on on Friday, James Fox and I will appear on the Angela Joyner Report radio show tonight, Friday, June the 11th, from 9 to 11 p.m. Central. If you missed it, go to Angela Joyner's website and listen there. And one last thing. James Fox flew over the spill yesterday for three hours and said that what we'll see on the video that he'll be uploading soon will shock us. The pilot said it looked apocalyptic. So check back periodically for more updates. And now, get ready to spend the night with an excellent researcher and author. Is the Nazi virus still infecting new generations? If you don't think that the Nazi business plan continues, stop this audio now. If you want to know the connection between our current state of war, fascism, 9-11, and even the Roswell crash, don't go anywhere. Dr. Joseph Farrell is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. right here on the very test show is supplied by the independent artists from jamendo.com if you hear a song you like go over to our homepage veritasshow.com click on the guest look up the song and download it you can even buy the group's cds in many cases right there at jamendo.com Hoagland, and you are listening to Veritas. Joseph P. Farrell has a doctorate in patristics from the University of Oxford and has published four previous works, all of theology. He resides in his home state of South Dakota, where he pursues research on his other loves and hobbies. He plays the harpsichord and composes classical music. He also enjoys physics alternative history and science, and strange stuff. 
he has written many books, including the latest ones, Nazi International, the Nazis' post-war plan to control the worlds of science, finance, space, and conflict. The latest book, Roswell and the Reich, the Nazi Connection, and to be released this month of June 2010, Babylon's Banksters, the alchemy of deep physics, high finance, and ancient religion. And in case anyone is wondering what the definition of patristics is, it's the study of the lives, writings, and doctrines of the church fathers. And directly from South Dakota, I would like to introduce, for the first time on Veritas, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Hello, Dr. Farrell. How are you? I'm pretty good, Mel. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. May I call you uh, Joseph or Joe? Sure. Great. I just want to tell you that for months, people have been asking to to have you on the show, and I'm glad you accepted my invitation. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Richard C. Hoagland. Right. Then last week, we had Jay Whitener, now you, and in the next few days, Jim Mars. So as I told Jay Whitener last week, if listeners want to connect the dots, this is the group to listen to, don't you think? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> no <laughs> argument for me. <laughs> I'd like to uh, start out uh, with a bit of background, background information, in addition to what I just read. Tell us about yourself. How many books in total have you written? And I'd like to learn about what drives you as an author and what was the defining moment that made you look into these topics, including the Nazis. Well, uh, I have 11 books out now. I'm working on another one, um, which will make it 12. And I've always been, to be quite honest, I've always been interested in, in alternative science and, and the interface that it has with history and, and hidden aspects of history. And when I when I quit teaching college, I decided I might, I might as well bite the bullet and write down some of my kooky ideas. Exactly. <laughs> and lo and behold, people actually started reading them, so I just kept at it. So you and Jim Marsh, Jim had the, the rise of the Third Reich, and, and you have Roswell and the Reich. Now Jim has the trillion-dollar conspiracy, and you have Babylon's bankers. I know you're friends, but do you work together? No, we don't, actually. Um, I, I'm, I'm good friends with Jim Mars. I'm, I'm good friends with Richard Hoagland, and all three of us are very independent in, in what we do and, and how we do it. We just kind of keep backing into each other, you know, so... <laughs> Yes, you are. And by the way, I spoke to Jim yesterday, and uh -huh. he's reading uh, Roswell on the Reich right now. I was interested in knowing what you will say here tonight so he can comment during our show in a few days. But before we start, I know you studied the Great Pyramid. Mm -hmm. There are mysterious comings and goings in the covert night uh, of the Giza Plateau. A film has been released that shows uh, the removal of items from underground. Have you looked into this? No, I haven't. I, in fact, I haven't done anything on the pyramid since my last pyramid book came out, which was, oh, I think five or six years ago. I've, when I'm writing a book, I'm pretty much focused on what I'm doing at that moment. So I haven't, I'm not familiar with that film. I've been alerted to it by some of my fans, but I haven't yet seen it. So I, I really am not in a position to comment on it. Sure. And going back to your the trilogy, one of your oldest books, the Giza Death Star. How do you come up with that, that title, by the way? Well, it, it's my thesis, and it has always been my thesis uh, from, from teenage years, in fact. I had the idea that the Giza Plateau resembled nothing more to me than kind of a hardened military compound. Mm -hmm. And I always suspected that there was some sort of weapons aspect to the to the structure of the pyramid itself, 
And, of course, when Chris Dunn came out with his book, The Giza Power Plant, that really got me to thinking. And then, of course, Zechariah Sitchin came out with um, The Wars of Gods and Men, yes. in which he interpreted, very deliberately interpreted the pyramid as a weapon, but he just sort of let the idea out there, but he didn't do much with it. You know, he he just sort of mentioned it in passing, and I thought, well, gee, you know, that's an interesting idea. So I decided I might as well bite the bullet, and, and that was that was the book that got me started in all of this alternative science and, and um, history stuff. So I've kind of kept at it since then. I should I should mention one more thing, and that is that all 11 of my books, if people actually read them, they'll find that they dovetail quite deliberately into each other. So it may seem like pyramids and Nazis are, <laughs> are wildly separated on, on the spectrum, but, but there is a, a kind of a running theme through all the books. And I like to explore the, the connection, because some people say that there's a connection between Egypt and uh, the Nazis. But as someone else said recently, everything you write is heavily footnoted. You have a peer-reviewable attitude, and you cross all your T's and dot all your I's. You dig deep on this stuff, so you are my kind of researcher. But Joseph, this is a topic that will be hard for many people to process, and I want to dissect it in a way that it's easily understood, Mm -hmm. especially to those who may not be familiar with it. Explain for purposes of the people who know nothing about this. Mm -hmm. Let's call it crypto technology of the Third Reich. What it is, and how many others believe the Nazis were working on, not only in the latter part of World World War II, but even prior. Right. Well, the way I would explain it is this. It's my belief that when the Nazis banned so-called Jewish physics, in other words, relativity and and even certain aspects of, of quantum mechanics, that the standard academic line is, well, this just points to the palpable failure of the scientific method and of science in general within Nazi Germany. But I think you have to look at the other side of the coin, too. While it's certainly true that there were manifest and palpable failures of of physics inside of the Third Reich during the Nazi era, there are also breakthroughs. And the reason why is, by banning those ideas, the Nazis were, in fact, saying to their scientists, we want you to think outside the box. We want you to go brainstorm. And what this did, in my opinion, is that in addition to the palpable failures, we're just now, since German reunification, which is kind of the signal event that kicks all this information loose, we're just now in the last, oh, 10 to 20 years, learning about some of the incredible successes that they had. And in terms of this crypto technology and and this crypto physics, I believe there are three things driving them. And and the basic physics here that they're after is, is a kind of torsion physics. And the way I like to illustrate that is that if you can imagine emptying a soda can and then wringing it like a dish rag, what happens to the can is that it will spiral and fold and pleat. Now, what the can represents is, in fact, space-time. So torsion is the engineering of space-time by spiraling and folding and pleating it. This is exactly what the Nazis are after. And they're after it, in my opinion, for three different things. They're after it for, of course, uh, having an alternative energy source to free Germany from dependence on foreign energy sources. Mm-hmm. The second thing that they'd be after it for is obviously some form of advanced field propulsion. And the third thing, of course, Nazis being Nazis. is Weapons. Wanna, yeah, weapons. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And of course, anytime you say that you, you have a, a technology 
that can engineer space-time locally, in other words, so to speak, on the laboratory bench. If you weaponize that technology, potentially you have a technology that would make our largest hydrogen bombs look like nothing but firecrackers. In other words, this is genuinely planet-busting stuff, potentially. So this is what the Nazis were up to, in my opinion, during, during the war. Well, I can't say I blame the first two parts. I mean, uh, trying to, to, to circumvent the, the dependence on foreign oil, that's something that yeah. we should be doing here as well. But there's a, an aspect that a lot of people email me all the time. It's Tibet. What is the Tibet-Nazi connection? We keep hearing the Nazis went to Tibet searching for something. Well, let me rephrase the question. What motivated the Nazis to go to Tibet on the other side of the world in the first place? Well, that's an excellent question, and to answer it, you kind of have to set the basic context. I think it was circa 1935-1936, somewhere in there. Heinrich Himmler, the Reichsführer of the SS, mm -hmm. established, uh, came out with a short little decree. You kind of have to dig for it in the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal archives, but eventually, if you dig long enough, you can find this thing. This decree set up a department of the SS called the Annenerbedienst, which was so to speak, the ancestral research bureau that he set up within the SS to go research all aspects of the Aryan heritage. Now, here's the curveball. When he did this, he also said that this was to be done for the aspect of trying to find out any potential military application of all this ancient lore. So it's in that context, then, that you have to understand all of these very weird Nazi expeditions to Iceland or to Antarctica or to Latin America or, in this, in this case, Tibet. There was an expedition that was launched under the leadership of a man named Schaefer that went to Tibet under the auspices of this Anand Erbedienst. And they actually gained entrance into the Potala uh, from the regent of Tibet at that time, a fellow by the name of Rimposh. And they made it out, and this is the incredible part of the story, they made it out of the Potala with an entire copy, the only copy to my knowledge that ever came to the West, of the Tibetan epic, the Kang Shur, most of which is untranslated to this day. Now, very interestingly enough, at the end of the war, there were discovered, when the Russians entered Berlin, there were discovered, I think, some... Uh, some hundreds of, of Tibetan monks that had committed ritual suicide. And I suspect that they were brought out at some point during the war by a commando operation by air to Nazi Germany to assist the Germans in translating this, this copy that they had of the Kang Shur. So in other words, the Tibet expedition was, in my opinion, uh, part and parcel of this huge effort that the Nazis made to recover as much ancient lore as they could for the purposes of its potential military application. I think that's what it was all about. And just to put things in perspective, I think uh, the listeners would uh, want to know the definition of the, the Annenerb, which is a Nazi German think tank. In your opinion, is this organization still operating today? Well, that's another excellent question. It's my opinion, based on the research that I did in the book that you mentioned at the top of the show, The Nazi International, it's my opinion that some sort of very well-organized, very well-financed post-war Nazi organization existed. I like to call it the Nazi International 
because what I think we're dealing with here is a kind of an extraterritorial Nazi state mm-hmm. that, that managed to disperse itself around the world, particularly in Latin America, but also in places like Taiwan, Egypt, and so on and so forth. So, yes, I think if we, if we allow for the fact that this organization was uh, very pervasive, that they continued some of their research, which I definitely believe they did, then it stands to reason that some of their research would continue in this avenue of, of locating and finding ancient technology and ancient texts and translating them in a certain way. I have an anonymous source, and I hope I don't get disconnected. Sometimes, uh, Dr. Farrell, we get disconnected when specific questions are asked. Oh, I've, and this, I've been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> you probably know Dr. Paul Laviolette. We get uh, disconnected 20, over 20 times at one point. But um, <laughs> this anonymous source tells me that George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, President uh, Bush 41, is part of this Ananurbi organization. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. Uh, I have heard all sorts of claims and so on about the Bush family and their relationship to the Nazis. Of course, the well-known uh, case of Prescott Bush. And Prescott his, Bush, yes. Yeah, his connection to Fritz Thiessen. But no, I have not heard that. Um, but anymore, i got to be honest with you, nothing surprises me after, sure. after reading and researching all these books. Exactly. Now, this may sound like science fiction, but what do you know of the Tibetans guarding the entrance of the king of the world? Well, that, again, is part of a, a lore, a, a mythology, if you will, that does come from Tibet and was popularized to a certain extent by one of the fellows or figures that had some influence on Nazi ideology, a fellow by the name of Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton, who wrote a book called Vril uh, about precisely this this aspect of a hidden civilization based in the Himalayan mountains that actually had such a figure, a so-called king of the world. So again, yeah, uh, this this plays into Nazi ideology and, and Nazi thinking, particularly in the SS and particularly with Reichsfuhrer Himmler. Could this be why the Chinese were so interested in, in capturing, if you will, that area of the world? Yeah, I think so. I think there is, to be quite honest with you, uh, I think that there is a kind of a hidden uh, ancient technology uh, agenda afoot with the great powers of the world. Certainly China's move into Tibet, you have the pervasive, uh, to this day, the pervasive on-the-ground German intelligence uh, presence within Iraq. Uh, You have, of course, our invasion of Iraq, and I don't think that it was simply to procure oil fields and forward American military bases, I think that there was probably a very hidden esoteric uh, agenda. So yeah, I think I think we have to look at this very seriously, because Nazi Germany really was the first great power in the world that kind of opened that box, and everybody just followed suit. And what you just said about Iraq, I was going to leave it till the end of the show, not knowing <laughs> if you were going to talk about this. But let me, before I forget, I, I read something you wrote a couple of years ago saying that uh, more than likely there's going to be war with Iran. And it's not because of what they present, the nuclear weapons and so on, but because of the weapons of the ancient weapons of mass destructions and mass destruction. They may be learning to use, which would make our nuclear weapons, as you say, be like uh, uh, firecrackers. Do you right. still feel that? Well, yeah, I do. I think that there is uh, behind all of these moves in that part of the world. I do think that there is 
the likelihood, I'll put it that way, of some sort of hidden esoteric agenda afoot in, in these places. And certainly Iran, uh, particularly around the old capital of Susa, you know, the Persian Empire and so on and so sure. forth. Uh, certainly they're going to be after certain things if they ever do move into Iran. You know, that's that's a big if. But, uh, yeah, I, there's no doubt in my mind that this is this is part of the hidden agenda. In Iraq, did you ever hear that uh, the, the, the alleged looting, in reality what was done was to retrieve all the, 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 the items and now they have been replaced with... Uh, facsimile or, or copies? Have you heard about that? Counterfeits? My my take on the Baghdad Museum looting, I'm glad you asked that question because I have footnotes in several of my books about what I think went on there. If we go back to the pre-invasion period when Saddam Hussein was still ruling Iraq, he had lots of German and French archaeological teams digging for him inside of Iraq. And when we invaded, of course, we alerted the French and Germans to get their people out of there. Sure. Now, here's the thing. When the Baghdad Museum looting occurred, supposedly Iraqi citizens saw American soldiers going in and removing things from the museum. Okay? And so the blame initially was put on us. All right? But the people that released that story first was, were, in fact, the German media. Now, hmm. what I think went on, if you look at the heavy presence of, of the German intelligence service, the BND, in Iraq to this day, what I think went on is that most likely, since the Germans were the ones keeping the actual field catalogs of what they were digging up for Hussein, you probably are looking at some sort of intelligence operation of the German BND that went in there and did this with, you know, using American uniforms under a false flag operation. So in other words, uh, Germany, in my opinion, was just kind of continuing the same archaeological policy that it had been pursuing ever since the Kaiser. So, you know, it's, you know everybody's digging and scratching around out there, and I think they're looking right. for, for clues to, to ancient technology. And I think... I think in this particular instance, it was probably the Germans behind it. So you think there will be a continuation if we actually go against Iran? Yeah, there's going to be, if we actually do go against Iran, I'm not certain that we will, but if, if we do, I think that that activity is, is certainly going to be a part of the agenda, yes. Now, going back to Germany, when Germany became East and West Germany, did mm -hmm. some technology remain behind the wall, and was it retrieved after the wall came down? Oh, excellent. Uh, in this is this is really the central question that I've been addressing throughout most of my Nazi books. And in brief, my opinion is that if you look carefully at the end of the war and what is going on on the Nazi side of it, you'll discover that it's the Nazis themselves who are driving the technological division of the spoils. For example. We in the United States get the creme de la creme of, of the rocket scientists, the, the jet aircraft designers, and, and so on and so forth. But the Soviets get hundreds of middle echelon managers that worked in those projects that were able to reconstruct the document trail for the Soviet Union. So in other words, time and again, if you look at the way the spoils are divided, they're divided more or less equally It's as if the Nazis are setting us up for the post-war, Cold War stalemate. 
But in my research, one of the things I've, I've come to the conclusion is that the really good stuff, this very advanced torsion-based physics, the really advanced stuff they kept to themselves and continued investigating independently of any of the victorious powers of, of World War II after the war. Now, the question that I always have in my mind, going back to paperclip, mm-hmm. how was it decided between the United States and, and Russia as it relates to who got whom, scientists, engineers-wise? Well, that's another good question. But again, you have to go back to the operations right towards the end of the war. It's really not the United States or the Russians that are driving this. They're certainly moving their troops in, in if you examine the operational moves that are made at the end of the war, they're, they're moving their troops in very weird ways that make no operational sense from any conventional point of view. But on the Nazi side, the scientists themselves are going or heading in certain directions, you know, Werner von Braun and his team, for example, heading towards the American uh, lines so right. that they would be captured by the Americans, the middle echelon managers heading for the Soviet lines and so on and so forth. So, it's again, it's the Nazis that are really determining who gets what. Uh, you know, the biggest, the biggest mystery of the end of the war as far as I'm concerned, and I, I cover this in, in the first of the Nazi books, a book called Reich of the Black Sun, is that if you look at General Patton's Third Army movements at the end of the war, he's making a beeline for all of the major centers of some Nazi secret weapons research, including the, the Mother Lode, which is in a little city outside of Prague in Czechoslovakia named Pilsen. And to me, it looks like he was being steered by some sort of intelligence agenda. Whether he was aware of it or not, I don't know. But certainly by the time his forward commands entered some of these places, he would have been getting field intelligence reports that would have allowed him to piece together a very thorough picture of exactly what the Nazis were up to. And we're going to be jumping around because your research encompasses so many areas. But before I forget, growing up in the Caribbean, I remember many Argentinians who grew up with me who were of uh, German descent. They find that in Chile, not only in Argentina, but Chile, Paraguay, Uruguay, etc. Mm -hmm. What did many Nazi choose the Southern Hemisphere to relocate or escape? And folks, I'm not saying that all Germans who went there were Nazis. I don't want my German-Argentinian friends to write to me with hate mail saying that, uh, that I'm calling them Nazis. No, just want to make that clear. But why do they choose the Southern Hemisphere, Dr. Farrell? Well, basically, it's because German business interests had, had made a point, every, you know, ever since the, the German Empire under the Kaisers, had made a point of, of trying to penetrate and develop business contacts within Latin America, and particularly in Argentina, those those business penetrations were rather thorough. So I think it was simply a strategic decision that, you know, there had been this relationship with Latin America for some time between Latin America and Germany, so that it was easy for those people to relocate there. There certainly were Germans that had been uh, settled in those countries as part of their business relationships and so on. So there was already a German community established in those countries. That, that to me, is, is really the, the bottom line for why it happened that way. That's true. And even in the 1800s, uh, a group yeah. went to Venezuela, what's called Colonia Tovar. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's even to this day, you go there and you believe you're walking in Bavaria somewhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's many places like that in Latin America. <laughs> so at the end of the war, 
who was unaccounted for? And by the way, let's put the rumor to rest if we can. Did Hitler really commit suicide or did he leave to Argentina or Antarctica? Oh, boy. Uh, that is the $64 trillion question. <laughs> I, you know, in all honesty, I started out uh, when I began this research towing the party line that Hitler indeed committed suicide in, in Argentina, or pardon me, in Berlin. In the bunker. But the more I research and the more I, I come to grips with one basic fact, I have to allow the possibility now that he may indeed have made it out of Nazi Germany to survive his last days somewhere in Latin America. And the reason I say that is twofold. The first is, if you look at who is saying that Hitler committed suicide, well, we're dealing in every instance with bona fide, honest-to-goodness Nazis. <laughs> right, okay? exactly. So, in other words, you know, we've been, we've been excoriating this hideous regime for 12 years as being nothing but a pack of liars and cheats and thieves and murderers, and yet, all of a sudden, at the end of the war, we're going to start believing them when they tell us, well, this person died here and that person died there. Well, that's that's my first problem. Uh, and, you know, when you look at it that way, Mel, you, you have to realize the fact that there's not an insurance company in the world that would pay a life insurance policy on Adolf Hitler, you know, exactly. for, for those very precise reasons. But the second reason is, is if you, if you step outside of the Anglo-American version of the end of World War II and go to Argentina and ask lo local Argentinians in a certain region of Argentina, they are adamant that Adolf Hitler lived out his last days very close to, to this little city in, in uh, southwest. Colonia Dignidad? Not Colonia Dignidad. It's actually... Uh, San Carlos de Bariloche down in Rio okay, Negro Bariloche. Sure. But uh, if you ask them, they are adamant that Hitler survived the war there. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, there's Do a they have any pictures, any photographs to, to prove that? No, they don't. But they do have very interesting anecdotal tales. Some of these tales come from people that actually worked inside a very large Nazi compound that... Uh, was located somewhere within a hundred miles of, of San Carlos de Bariloche. So the the stories are enough to convince me, given the other activities of the Nazis that I've discovered down there, are, are enough to convince me that there, you know, you have to hold out the possibility that Hitler did make it out of Nazi Germany. I'm going to put an objective, a goal for me to contact. Uh that region of the world to see if I could get some testimonials myself. Yes, interesting. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting place down there uh, in San Carlos de Bariloche and, and Huemo Island and, and so on and so forth. There's all sorts of interesting things to be learned there. <laughs> I can see how Hitler would have chosen that area. It's just so beautiful. Well, yes, it is a pretty area. It's very, it's very remote, and yet it's also, uh, by the same token, accessible. And one of the things that that I uncovered in Nazi International that I mentioned in that book was that during the war, the Nazis had bought up some ten thousand square miles of Rio Negro province. <laughs> you know? huh. So, in other words, they bought an area the size of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and <laughs> right and turned it in, <laughs> into a Nazi enclave. And obviously Juan Perón 
must have been totally in bed with the Nazis too. Well, yes, he was. Uh, you know, Perón was was uh, was a Nazi file, as as most people know. And uh, but by the same token, he was nobody's fool, and he was nobody's patsy either. And uh, I, I uncovered a a very interesting post-war Nazi research project that was going on in, in Perón's Argentina. And uh, if you if you read the <laughs> if you read Nazi International, you can kind of sense that Perón isn't really the one in charge of this research project. It's a German, isn't it? It's a German, yes. Ronald Richter is, is the fellow's name. And, and uh, his behavior when when the world denounces his claims uh, that Perón kind of accidentally, I think, let slip out of the bag inadvertently, uh, I think Richter's behavior in front of the Argentine Commission that Perón started to investigate his research project, Richter's behavior is so uh, amateurish and so incompetent that he manages to get Perón to shut the project down. Well, I think that Richter was acting under orders to shut his own project down so that the Nazis could move it elsewhere in Latin America, <laughs> which is, which is, I think, pretty much what happened. Where do you think they moved it to? That I don't know. I've heard rumors, but the rumors are so unsubstantiated, I don't even want to go into specifics. I have sure. I have ideas where they might have moved it. Certainly, the area of Chile around uh, Colonia Dignidad would be one possibility. But there are areas in Brazil as well. But uh, it, after Richter's project is shut down uh, in 1952, I think it was, by Perón's government, the the project i'm pretty certain went elsewhere and the reason i say that is that 4 years after the world press led by the united states had roundly denounced richter our us air force is still secretly interviewing him and investigating the project so you know the man was hardly anything but an incompetent if we're still investigating him right exactly and since you mentioned the purchase of uh, a piece of land the size of Massachusetts, mm -hmm. I have to ask you, the Bush family, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, bought that piece of, of land in Paraguay, 100,000 hectares, on top of one of the largest aquifers in the world, yes. bordering Brazil, Argentina. Why do you believe that happened? Well, in a nutshell, I think they want to be close to old family friends. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> I keep the water, too. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't that interesting that many in the United States just thought, saw it as, uh, yeah, so, so what? They're buying a piece of property down there for retirement, perhaps. But isn't that uh, suspicious? Well, in my opinion, of course, it's suspicious. Paraguay under Stresner was was absolutely one of the most pro-Nazi regimes in Latin sure. America, and uh, you know there is still uh, in that country and and in some regions of Argentina and Chile there are still very very prominent uh, Nazi enclaves. So. Uh, to me, yes, that that is highly suspicious given the family history prior to the war with the Nazis. And Paraguay was founded by the Jesuits, and I know that uh, you, you you study theology. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your take of the the, the Vatican Nazi connection? 
Well, that is that is an aspect of the story I really don't go into in any of my books because it has been covered by many other other uh, authors in in quite some detail. But to to put it in a nutshell, to kind of give the Cliff Notes version of it. I think what you're looking at with this post-war ratline operation is you're looking at three players in in this operation. You have, of course, the Vatican Secretariat of State, which is uh, helping some of these people get to Latin America under Vatican diplomatic passports. You certainly have, on the Argentinian end, you have the involvement of Perón's government very directly in this activity. And that's an aspect of the story most people don't talk about, and that's the aspect of the story that I do talk about. But the third player are the Nazis themselves. I think you have to look at the SS as a a covert organization, certainly. And it had, I think, intentionally penetrated beginning circa late 1941 with the failure of the German offensive in the Soviet Union. I think you had very deliberately the beginnings of, of the SS penetration into Argentina, into the Vatican, and so on and so forth, to be able to set some of this strategic evacuation up over a long term. Were they just giving safe haven to, say, the Austrian Nazis who were Catholics, or were they just taking everybody? For the most part, at least as far as the Vatican goes, I think they were looking primarily at, at Catholics. Um, as far as the SS goes, they were trying to get anybody out that they could. And as far as Juan Perón was concerned, that was that was also true of, of uh, his policy. But yeah, as far as the Vatican goes, it was predominantly Catholics that they were they were trying to get out. So at the end of the war, who wasn't accounted for? In other words, when they were doing paperclip and so on, mm-hmm. did they find like, wait a minute, so and so is not here? Where did they go? And if they went to Argentina, did they retrieve him afterwards? Well, this is another excellent question. In my opinion, the big fish, Martin Bormann and and Hans Kammler and Heinrich Miller and people of this ilk, right. probably ended up in Latin America. You know, the famous the famous example I like to cite in Bormann's case is okay. Well, here we have a man who supposedly died in a tank, or maybe it was by a tank, and maybe it was over here at the Lerter Bridge. Oh no, wait a minute, it was the Weidendammer Bridge. You know. <laughs> Sure. They can't get the story straight as to where and when and how he died. So just for good measure, the Nuremberg Tribunals, War Crimes Tribunals, sentenced him to death in absentia. (laughs) 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 So, you know, here we we have the case of a man who's really dead, we think, but we're going to sentence him to death anyway. (laughs) In case he's not dead. In case he's not dead, you know. And if you look at if you look at the the history of post-war Nazi uh, retrieval or, or exposure in Latin America since that time, what you really have are the small fry that get exposed. It's almost as if you know someone is tossing the Western intelligence services the occasional crumb or the occasional bone from the table, you know, to keep the big sure. fish secure. Right. And and the really interesting thing, and this just blows my mind to this day is I came across the research of Paul Manning, who is an associate of the old CBS anchorman, Ed Murrow. And he wrote a book called Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile. 
And in it, he details the fact that in, I think, circa 1967, which is comparatively late, Martin Bormann cashed a check, okay? <laughs> cashed a check drawn on Manufacturer's Hanover Trust and Chase Manhattan accounts. It was cleared through Deutsche Bank, and here's the kicker. The check was signed over his own signature. <laughs> oh, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> and, and to those who, who, who wonder what Manufacturer's Hanover is, it used to be a factoring company. Yes, yes. So... <laughs> Now, let me go back. When these people left and the unaccounted for, did the United States, let me use the word retrieve, as opposed to capture, any German scientists who fled to Argentina? Did we actually retrieve them? No. We, as far as I can tell to this date, no, we did not. Uh, And I think the reason being that those scientists down there were so heavily guarded by uh, SS guards and so on and so forth. And, and of course, it would have been an act of war to go into Argentina, you know. And certainly. certainly. You know, we certainly wouldn't have wanted to do that because we, we quite literally needed Argentina, uh, definitely needed Argentina in terms of our hemispheric defense at that time against, uh, against Soviet expansion. Right. So, you know, it, there was just no way we were going to jeopardize uh, relationships with Argentina. So, no, to my knowledge, we did not retrieve any of the scientists that actually went to Argentina. What is the Vril and the Vril Society, for those listeners who don't know? Well, the Vril Society was first mentioned by the German rocket scientist Willy Lai, who was one of those scientists that fled Nazi Germany to escape the Nazi regime and came to this country prior to the war. And he mentioned that there was this society based in Berlin, that believed that there was a very different form of physics um, and that they had actually published a little pamphlet about it uh, prior to the war. And I have actually managed to see that pamphlet. I know that it exists. So the society, we don't know that much else about it. It is rumored, although I have not been able to substantiate this beyond rumors, okay? But I do mention it in, in one of my books. It is rumored that the Vril Society had some channelers between the wars that supposedly made contact with an extraterrestrial civilization in the planetary uh, star system of, of Aldebaran. So, you know, there's all sorts of rumors attached to the Vril Society. The name Vril itself is the name of the force, so to speak. Think, you can think of it in terms of the Star Wars force that was mentioned by Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton in his novel that was so influential on some of the SS leadership. So how did the Nazis relocate ships, submarines, and what do you know about Operation High Jump and Admiral oh, Byrd, and that he supposedly met with Aryans and Nazis in uh, Neuschwabenland in Antarctica? Well... Let's take the first part of the question first. Um, By and large, the strategic evacuations out of Nazi Germany were both by U-boat and by long-range aircraft that were flying from Europe down into National Spain and then from National Spain over the hump of Africa and over to Latin America. Uh, It's it's not a well-known fact, but it is true that Martin Bormann and the Nazi party itself had a number of so-called black boats, in other words, U-boats that were 
taken off the Kriegsmarine rolls and turned directly over to Bormann himself and to the Nazi party leadership. And those were the boats that were used along with some of the Kriegsmarine U-boats to funnel all of this technology, all this loot and, and personnel down to Latin America. The evacuation fleet, if you will? The evacuation fleet, yes, absolutely. Um, The second part of the question about Operation High Jump, Admiral Byrd led a military expedition, and it cannot be classified as anything else (laughs) other than a military expedition, Mm -hmm. to Antarctica in late 1946, early 1947, and it included, I believe, a battalion of Marines and an aircraft carrier. The rumor is that, and again, I stress the word rumor because it's kind of the part of the mythos of of the post-war Nazi survival thing that the Germans constructed this huge research base in in Antarctica in that region that they claimed before the war called Neuschwabenland. But I tend to dismiss that idea for the simple reason that the kind of physics that the Germans were really investigating required so much enormous electrical power output that it really would have been impossible for them to turn Antarctica into a sort of secret research base. It is true that Byrd's expedition was outfitted for eight months, and it returned after only eight weeks. And it is also true that Admiral Byrd gave an interview to a Chilean newspaper reporter for El Mercurio in in Santiago de Chile, Mm -hmm. in which he said that the United States should prepare for to defend itself against enemy fighters that can fly from pole to pole with tremendous speed. And it's that remark that has led people to speculate that he ran into some sort of... uh, Nazi opposition in Antarctica that was using all of this fantastic technology that they developed right towards the end of the war and just basically, if I may put it bluntly, got his butt kicked right <laughs> right out of Antarctica. And that's why it's eight weeks and not eight months. And that's why it's eight weeks and not eight months. And it is it is unusual that that his diaries are his diaries of that expedition are still classified. And it's unusual that that you know that expedition not only left Antarctica with its tail between its legs, but that later during the International Geophysical Year, in a rare example of international cooperation, the United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain exploded atomic bombs right above <laughs> that old Nazi-claimed area of Antarctica. So make of that what you will. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's okay. True. Yes. Now, this technology, mm-hmm. alien or ancient knowledge that was acquired and uh, it was engineerable, if, if you will. Well, that's, an, that's a question I get a lot. In fact, you know, in, in my presentations that I do at conferences, I always get the question, well, couldn't the Nazis have got all this from a crashed and recovered ET vehicle? And my response is always this. Number one, the stories of crashes and recoveries inside of Nazi Germany before the war are very, very poorly documented. And number two, I take great pains, particularly in beginning with my book called The SS Brotherhood of the Bell and then continuing on in the books in the Nazi series after that, I take great pains to show 
that you do not need ET or crashed vehicles to rationalize the physics that they're doing because you can find the physics papers, you can find the engineering papers. They're all published in Europe between the wars and many of them in Germany. You can find these papers, so you don't really need that. Now, that said, there is, I believe, and I point this out particularly in a book called The Philosopher's Stone, there is definitely an esoteric influence or an occult influence, if you will, on the development of this physics. So yes, I think you have to look at the possibility of ancient lore influencing some of their thinking. Now, this is we have to look at, at one point here that it always amazed me. If Admiral Byrd, as you say, he got his butt kicked by the, the, the Nazis or the Aryans or what have you, mm -hmm. why didn't the Nazis win the war if they had this technology? Well, another good question. I think, you know, in Reich of the Black Sun, I make the case that the Nazis probably had the atom bomb prior to the end of the war. In other words, that they beat us to it. Mm -hmm. There are two reasons, I think, that we don't uh, hear about this technology being used or used openly. The first is, is most of this technology, if it was going to be used on anybody, they're more likely to use it on their hated ideological enemies, the Soviet Union, than on the Western allies. And for that reason, I think we don't hear about it, because the Soviets... Stalin would have been loath to admit that he was facing an enemy that much technologically superior. And the reason I stress the Soviets, Mel, is because if you look at the casualties from World War II, 50 million by the standard count, and possibly as high as 75 million if you believe the recent released Russian figures on what their casualties actually were, This means that more than half of the casualties of World War II were inflicted by the Nazi war machine on Soviet Russia. And if you know anything about standard conventional military operations, as good as the German army was, that sort of uh, kill ratio, to put it bluntly, is just way beyond the pale. They're doing something unconventional on the Eastern Front that we've heard very little, if nothing, about during the entire war. Yeah, I don't think those were bullets only. No, those weren't bullets only. And to give you an example of some of the unusual things that they're doing, the SS commando Otto Skorzeny in his memoirs pointed out, and I mentioned this in one of the books, I forget which one right off the top of my head. Sure. But um, he mentioned that in the, the campaign against Moscow in, in late 1941, that the Germans were using rocket-launched liquid air bombs against the Russians. Now stop and consider what he's just told you, Mel. What he's just told you is the Germans are using an early version of the fuel air bomb. And a fuel air bomb has the punch of a tactical nuclear weapon. Right. Now, if you look at the, the kind of rocket-launched artillery that the Germans had in 1941, they were these six-barreled, uh, 8-inch and 12-inch rocket-launching devices. So if you can imagine a battery of, you know, six or six to nine of these six-barreled rocket, rocket launchers raining down fuel air bombs, you might as well say tactical nukes and carpet bombing in the same, same phrase. 
and the poor the poor Russians were you know so overwhelmed by this this type of weapon that they actually communicated to the Nazi government via neutral Sweden that if the Germans didn't cease and desist, the Russians were going to start using poison gas. That's how serious it was. So there was something, in my opinion, that was going on on the Eastern Front throughout the duration of the war that fell outside of normal conventional military operations. I don't know. I just, I'm just thinking about the Geneva Convention and how they're upping the ante by threatening to use uh, poison gas, but I don't blame him either. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, a lot of these scientists were, weren't even Nazis, if you will. They were just forced to operate under the jackpot of, of Hitler. Right. But w one time I, I put a, a lot of FBI and CIA declassified files on, on my website for Werner von Braun. And I've had a lot of people also email saying not to forget that the von Braun although he's admired for his accomplishments here in the United States, he was part of the slave labor camp yes. and requested more slaves to be used uh, during the war machine times, right? Yes, that's quite correct. That's quite correct. Von Braun was, was a commissioned SS major. And during the period from 1942 up till the end of the war, when the rockets were being produced by slave labor, you know, there was just no way that he could not have known that this was being done. There's just no way. And last week, you know, Jay Whitener, right. we were talking about the Falkland Islands uh, being a strategic listening post for the British because of the Nazi presence in that area right. and Antarctica. Can you comment about this? Well, that's another excellent observation. I do not mention any of that in, the, uh, any, in any of my Nazi books, but... It is well known that they are a listening post for Latin America, and during the war, this was particularly important because the Nazis had in place throughout Latin America a huge, huge network of radio, very powerful, in fact, radio transmitters that they called the Bolivar Network. And most of that was located in... A Bolivar? As Simon Bolivar, you mean? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It was called the Bolivar Network. And this was under the direct command of, of uh, the SS General Walter Schellenberg. At the end of the war, as part of the strategic evacuation, the Nazis turned the Argentinian portion of that radio transmitting network over to Perón's government for nominal control. But in fact, the Nazis kept de facto control of it. Now, that's a very important point. Because in Roswell and the Reich, I mentioned the fact that our counterintelligence had determined that the Nazi scientists in this country were getting instructions from somewhere. And the only way that, that I can rationalize that is that they're getting instructions from Latin America via this Bolivar network and some of their spies in, in Mexico. Why is the British, well, the British government at the time uh, was so interested, and even today, I mean, we had the Falkland Wars in, in yes. the uh, early 80s. Why are they so interested in that, in that piece of land then? Well, I think, I, I think, again, you have to go back to what I said previously. We are, we are dealing with a post-war Nazi international organization that has enclaves all over the world, certainly in Latin America. And I believe this organization is still in existence. That's the crucial point here. So naturally, the British are going to have 
a key strategic interest in maintaining control of the Falkland Islands as a listening post, not so much, in my opinion, to monitor those Latin American governments, but more more from their standpoint to monitor the activities of, if they can find anything out about them, to monitor the activities of this organization. Do you think they're monitoring Antarctica? Probably. Probably. Antarctica... Go ahead. Antarctica is... <laughs> there's been all sorts of strange goings-on in Antarctica in the last few decades, uh, not, you know, Admiral Byrd being just sort of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, in Roswell and the Reich, I actually closed the book by pointing out the very, very unusual seismic activity in Antarctica that is way, way beyond anything that is the signature of an ordinary earthquake. What we're huh. looking at in seismographs down there are extremely long frequency longitudinal waves. In other words, we're looking at scalar waves. So something's going on down there, and certainly if, uh, if the... Scalar bridge... waves as in scalar weapons? Yes, that's precisely what I'm talking about. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, if if that's going on, certainly the British are going to maintain some sort of interest or listening post close by. Do, do you find, and I don't want to say that it's suspicious, but then you find that during World War II, mm -hmm. the, if the Germans wanted to really bomb uh, England, they right. would have bombed all the strategic points like, you know, Buckingham Palace and, and so on, and they didn't do that. Why? Well... At the end of World War II, the V-2s that they were using as the principal method of, of bombardment of England, the V-2 did not have the precision guidance to do that sort of thing. Basically, the, all they could do was, was target London and, and hope the V-2 fell somewhere within the confines of the city of London. Mm -hmm. Earlier during the war, during the Battle of Britain, this is a very interesting point. The Germans were winning the Battle of Britain up to a certain point because they were bombing the airfields. In other words, the British could take off from the airfields, but they wouldn't have an airfield to come back and land on. So gradually, the RAF was being forced out of the operational theater where it was most needed. And the way the British got the Germans to switch to bombing cities was they launched a bombing raid on Berlin. And, of course, Hitler pitched a hissy fit and said, well, we're going to retaliate and level your cities. And that's when the Luftwaffe changed his strategy over the, the profound and strong objections of, of Reich Marshal Goering. But uh, it's, it's at that point that the Germans lost the Battle of Britain. So yes, when, when they first started bombing England, they were bombing the strategic targets and, and doing a very thorough job of it, as the Germans are wont to do. <laughs> I just also wonder if uh, you know, the royal family, having German blood, as you know, mm -hmm. if they were indirectly being protected by Hitler because of their, their origins, if you will. Well, that partially, yes. And I think also you have to take into consideration the fact that the Nazis drew up a, a whole plan for occupying Britain. And certainly the royal family and any willing British politician would have been uh, protected by the Nazis if they hadn't fled England for the purposes of trying to, trying to convince them to cooperate in some type, some type of uh, collaborationist government. And we have to take a break, but before, I want to tell the audience that uh, I want to be exploring with you the latest book. 
Roswell and the Reich. Fascinating. And you believe that Roswell extraterrestrial bodies were not alien, but very oddly looking humans. Yes. And that what crashed there was not an alien craft, but it was probably ours, or Nazi, if you will. Nazi, yes. How do we get in touch with your work? You have so many great books, Dr. Farrell. Well, uh, I have two publishers. One of them is Farrell House, and right off the top of my head, I can't remember the phone number for them. The other one is Adventures Unlimited Press, and their number is 1-800-718-4514. And, of course, they can get any of my books at Amazon. They just Google my name and up, up will pop my books. And we have uh, links on our website. So much more to come. We're going to be talking about this. And we're probably, if you like, we're going to be talking about your latest book, uh, Babylon Baxters, right? Right. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas. We're here with Dr. Joseph Farrell. And you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Jay Widener, and you're listening to Veritas.